Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And in this episode, we welcome Professor Avi Loeb, who the New York Times called the most famous practicing astronomer in the United States and who also has been labeled the world's leading alien hunter. That's alien as an E.T. alien. Author of eight books, including Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, and the recently published Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. He's also published over a 1,000 scientific papers, a theoretical physicist. He presently is Frank Baird, Jr., professor of science at Harvard, and the longest-serving chair of Harvard's astronomy department, as well as founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and current director of the Institute of Theory and Computation within the Center for Astrophysics. He heads the Galileo Project at Harvard, which he co-founded and chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative, and he is former chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies, an elected fellow of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. He was selected in 2012 as one of the most influential people in space and probably maybe is at the top right now. He's certainly one of the most controversial figures. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Great pleasure to be with you. I should emphasize that I'm only interested in legal aliens. That's uh, well stated, and I'm glad that we can get that out of the way here and know that it's just legal aliens. Although, you know, I was thinking about the fact that someone no less than Stephen Hawking said if we really do ever have contact, it might not be the contact we had imagined. We might be dealing with beings, if we're dealing with exobiology or creatures from outer space, who may be like um, the Europeans were with the Native Americans when they came here. Well, um, I think uh, a lot of the discussion on this subject uh, uh, suffers from a, a sense of self-importance. You know, we tend to think uh, that we are important, that they come to visit us. But any such journey at the speeds of the spacecraft that we launched will take millions to billions of years. And humans did not exist on Earth when the journey started. Uh, the senders did not have us in mind. Um, and so we should be more modest. I, I see it as an opportunity for us to learn something about our technological future because they were able to reach us before we reached there, them. And uh, uh, it might not be the way we expect it because our imagination is guided by our experience here on Earth. Uh, it's a small rock. We tend to think that's uh, pretty much what there is out there in the universe. So many of my colleagues think that anything we see in the sky must be a stone. Uh, and I call that the Stone Age of Science. Uh, we should expect the unexpected in the sense that, you know, life uh, elsewhere may be very different than here. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, if we want uh, to be prepared for an encounter with uh, a technological gadget, we better not assume anything, but just uh, check everything that comes our way from outside the solar system and uh, make sure that it's not a bird, uh, a balloon, a drone, an airplane, things that are familiar to us, and then learn from it, <laughs> study, be modest, not assume that we are really at the center of the universe. I often say, you know, humans arrived to Earth uh, just a few million years ago, one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe, uh, and we are not at the center of the world, even though we wanted to be. Uh, and so if you arrive to a cosmic play at the end of the play and you are not at the center of stage, the play is not about you. That's and wisdom. You better... That's, uh, I think not only wisdom, it goes back to something as a kid that I maybe I know you feel that children should be uh, 
encouraged, and we should encourage people to think like children and be open to that, and that's uh, something I'm with you on as well. But as a kid, I used to think, we always heard that phrase, life as we know it, and I thought there may be life completely alien to anything <laughs> we ever imagined out there. We don't know what's out there. You have even exactly. said we should be looking maybe for... Uh, uh, industrial type of things like uh, chlorofluorocarbons uh, and pollution on planets if they've advanced technologically rather than necessarily looking for elements as we know it, oxygen, for example, or water even. Right. So in terms of what to look for, obviously, uh, most scientists believe that uh, primitive forms of life like microbes are very abundant. And in fact, it's possible that microbes arrived to Earth from Mars. You know, that in, uh, Mars developed life in that form early on because it cooled earlier. And then they were delivered. These small astronauts pre preceded uh, Elon Musk's ambitions by billions of years. They made it from Mars here and they started life here. That's quite possible. I'm interested in intelligent life because Microbial life, you know, is a step away from chemistry, uh, but it's not an impressive step. Uh, I really want to know if we have a partner out there, because, you know, when when you find a partner in your life, it's changing the meaning of your existence. We all know that. And, uh, you know, Steven Weinberg, who was a celebrated physicist, wrote at the end of his book, uh, the first three minutes, the more we know about the universe, the more pointless it looks. And of course, that reflects the opinions of my colleagues uh, that study the universe, but not mine, because I think it refers to lifeless objects like elementary particles, uh, radiation. Uh, however, uh, if you think that we have a partner out there and we will find evidence for it, then the universe will not be pointless anymore because we can have a conversation. We might learn from the partner. It will inspire us uh, it will give us a sense of purpose. And that's why I believe that seeking uh, evidence for a partner, for a neighbor, is the most important scientific question. And surprisingly, it's not in the mainstream of science. That's what I'm trying to change. Yeah, and you are out there on a mission, really, almost a kind of uh, strongly committed mission to make us interstellar partners, if that's possible, and really open us up to the... Uh, to saving ourselves, perhaps even, because we may be doomed, what we can find out there in terms of that kind of partnership that you're talking about. But here's the thing. Let me get right to cut to the chase here. There are many people who, you've had a distinguished and extraordinary career, and there are many people who have, you know, really been impressed with the kind of evidence that you have uncovered, particularly with Oumuamua and Hawaii and the expedition that you did to, uh, near, New, to uh, near New Guinea, um, Papua, both extraordinary uh, odysseys, really. What I was always struck by, though, was the notion that maybe the idea that these things that have come from outside of our solar system, clearly, there's evidence for that. I'm thinking about Sagan saying you need extraordinary evidence to prove extraordinary claims. It seems to many astronomers and many who are critical of you that you're taking a leap when you say, this is certainly from some space vehicle that's visiting us or that has visited us, even if it came from artificial intelligence and not with people manning it or beings manning it or humaning it, non-humaning it. So we have that kind of paradox, which you're facing all the time, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm claiming that the extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. Many of the people who repeat uh, Sagan's mantra, 
They are not seeking the evidence. And if you don't search, you will not find it. They have an opinion. And moreover, they're trying to prevent me from seeking the evidence by pushing back. And I'm not asking them to do anything. I'm just asking them to be agnostic and follow the scientific method, which is collecting materials, let's say, from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, analyzing it by the best mass spectrometer that the world has to offer, which uh, is owned by uh, my colleague at Harvard, Stein Jacobson, reporting the results in a scientific paper that will be peer-reviewed. That's the scientific process. They have a problem with that. They had a problem also with me communicating with the public through 43 diary reports during the expedition. And I don't feel myself uh, superior to the public. I feel that I should engage the public in the way science is done through trial and error. We can make mistakes. That's part of ex the ex exploring the unknown. And moreover, it looks like a detective story if the public sees how the work is done. Uh, it's not just through a press conference where the scientists stand on a stage and lecture to the public what they believe is true, and they uh, avoid showing any weaknesses, any mistakes they made. But in fact, we know that Albert Einstein, between 1935 1940, make three, made three mistakes. He said that black holes do not exist, that gravitational waves do not exist, and that quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance. And these three were shown wrong by experiments that won the Nobel Prize over the past six years. Uh, quantum entanglement received it, uh, black hole discovery received it, and gravitational wave detection received it. So I say it's a, 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 an elementary part of scientific inquiry of innovation uh, to make mistakes, but we should not pretend to be superior to the public, we should show the public how the scientific process is done so that they will believe it. Otherwise, they would regard it as an occupation of the elite. And aside from that, I'm a practicing scientist. I am doing the science. There are lots of bloggers and uh, science popularizers, many of whom you know, that uh, just talk about the work of others. And they tell me what to do, which I find really strange because it's just like commentators telling soccer players how to pass the ball on, on the field. You know, who are they to tell the soccer players who are playing how to do their job? If they want to do the job differently, they should become soccer players. And so if I'm a practicing scientist, you know, and I'm following the method of science that I followed for decades, I realize this is a controversial topic, but I do believe that we can get to the bottom of it by following the scientific method, which is what I'm trying to do. Rather than ridiculing it and, and avoiding it, I'm engaging with it. Well, NASA's behind you now. I mean, they've made announcements that they're moving in this direction to really examine what they call, uh, they, they don't use uh, unidentified flying objects anymore. They have different names, really seriously get to uh, <laughs> unidentifiable anomalous or aerial phenomena. Um, but you've got, you were talking about the money, and maybe there's some jealousy in all this because Yuri Milner and Charles Hodgkinson have put a good deal of financing behind your projects. You're getting well endowed, if I may put it that way. And um, that's all to the advantage of, I think, where we can move and what we can discover. But then you have these skeptics. I'm thinking about somebody like Mick West who compare what you're doing to Bigfoot or to. Um... I mean, it, it doesn't matter because he has no scientific paper to his record. And 
he is telling me what to do, uh, which I find really strange. Uh, I have more than a thousand papers that I wrote. I I wrote many textbooks um, in on on the science that I'm doing, and also popular books like uh, Extraterrestrial and Interstellar. And uh, you know, Mick West is used to dealing with uh, to debunking uh, eyewitness testimonies, which are not part of science, by the way. I don't think that humans can be regarded as scientific detectors. FIFA in the Women's World Cup recognized that because they decide about a goal based on video cameras, not based on what the players in the field say or what the audience says. So it's clear that scientific instrumentation is key uh, for uh, uh, having reliable evidence. And unfortunately, there are lots of people in the public that are using fuzzy images to make arguments. And Mick West is uh, recognized as debunking them. But that's what he's doing is not scientific as much as what those other people are doing is not scientific. They argue among themselves, but he's crossing a line where he's coming to comment on my work because I'm actually publishing scientific papers. I'm I'm engaged in the work. So I'm not a commentator. And so if he wants to be fair, he should actually engage in the science. Yeah, he uses the other analogy I was going to mention. He uses his crop circles. Uh, but here's a question. And by the way, we're taking your live questions. Uh, Reed wants to know, well, first of all, he says, Happy New Year to you, Professor Loeb. I have friends living oh. now in Beit Hanania, and I have visited there. Does the <laughs> professor think the recent hearings, because I had just touched on this, in Washington shed any light on the sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena? Well, the problem is uh, uh, there were three eyewitnesses, two of them, uh, military pilots, and uh, we don't have access to the data that substantiates what they noticed. And without that, without high quality data, and also you have to realize that any instruments in a jittery cockpit are not of scientific quality. They are not uh, fully understood. Uh, they are not under control as much as you want them to be, uh, and they are not reproducible. So um, that has a problem with the data uh, being available to us to infer whether it's uh, uh, they were seeing human-made objects or something else, maybe an optical illusion. Uh, but the third person was Grush, David Grush, who argued that the U.S. has uh, programs for retrieval and reverse engineering uh, of uh, alien crafts. And the problem with him is he never saw the evidence. He is talking about programs based on conversations with 40 uh, other people who may be part of those programs. But until we see the evidence, the material evidence, all the information that was collected, and of course that is classified, um, we can't judge whether it's a fabricated story or a real one because we don't have, he did not see the evidence. So he may be speaking the truth under oath that he heard people say that, but that is not sufficient evidence for uh, to convince me as a scientist. Um, I should tell you that you mentioned the beginning of the Jewish New Year. So in the Old Testament, in the in the Bible, there is this story about Moses witnessing the uh, burning bush that was never consumed. And that was a miracle that demonstrated to Moses that there is a superhuman entity called God. Okay? If I were next to Moses with the infrared cameras that we have in the Galileo project, I could have informed Moses what the surface temperature of this bush is, how much energy is radiated per unit time, what are the physical properties of the bush. And I could tell Moses whether it's a natural object that uh, 
is behaving a little different than uh, normal, or it was some technological equipment manufactured by a higher intelligence. And uh, now you may call it God, but you can also call it a more advanced scientific civilization. The two are almost indistinguishable because if you imagine a cave dweller uh, getting to Manhattan uh, and looking at all the gadgets out there, they would uh, that, that cave dweller will have a religious awe witnessing those things. And, uh, you know, it would look like a miracle. So the same is true for us. You know, if, if as a kid I was exposed to what we currently have, those cell phones and internet and AI, it would look like, uh, I'm encountering a, an alien, an advanced alien civilization. And we are currently creating an alien mind, you know, in the form of ChatGPT, those uh, large language models uh, that will have very soon, within a year or two, will have more connections than the number of synapses in the human brain. So here we are creating a technological kid, uh, child, that uh, is more capable than humans potentially in the near future. Uh, and I, it's interesting that it relates to language because we deviated from chimpanzees by developing a language. And now we are creating a technological kit, these AI systems that deviate from us uh, as a result of a la uh, understanding language. You mentioned God, and Einstein believed in the God of Spinoza. He said that on a number of occasions when they'd ask him about his belief in God. And I don't want to necessarily get in the weeds here on Baruch Spinoza, the great philosopher who was actually excommunicated from Judaism. I admire him. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious to know. I mean, do, do you, as a scientist and as a, a, a you know, extraordinary uh, gifted astronomer believe that there is a force out there as we come up on this Jewish New Year, that there is some deity? Yeah, to me, this, for, this uh, superhuman uh, entity could be a very advanced scientific civilization. Why do I say so? Because I can imagine creating life in the laboratory once you understand it well enough. And uh, I can also imagine that if a civilization is able to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, uh, something that we have not done so so well so far, uh, we don't have a predictive theory that will tell us what happened before the Big Bang or what happens at the center of a black hole where Einstein's theory breaks down because it doesn't incorporate quantum mechanics. We don't have that. But imagine, let's say, centuries from now, uh, if we had that theory, and there would be engineers, quantum gravity engineers, that could uh, manipulate space-time uh, based on the understanding of quantum gravity. Uh, I can imagine a situation where they might create a baby universe in the laboratory out of nothing. And um, because, you know, if you look at our universe, it has a flat geometry, meaning uh, zero energy in any volume. The uh, gravitational binding energy, the negative uh, energy is balanced by the positive energy associated with the cosmic expansion. So uh, our universe uh, could have taken no energy to be created. Uh, and you know, Forgive me, Professor Loeb, you're talking about our universe, and yet it's always been interesting to me that you have all these theoretical physicists who talk now about multiverses and string theory as if it's a fact. <laughs> Yeah, and so the, a lot fact, of these are, are the physicists who are criticizing you for the kind of assumptions you come to. 
Well, so that's really interesting because I'm talking about real objects, you know, that we see in the sky, okay? And they are talking about extra dimensions and parts of the universe that we cannot access. And suppose a car dealer would come to you and talk about an amazing car that uh, exists only in the multiverse, that in some extra dimensions and ask you for uh, the payment. Would you give it? Or let's put it another way. Suppose a plumber came to your home and you, you ask the plumber, uh, could you please uh, fix the toilet? And the plumber would say, no, that's too difficult for me. And then you ask, could you please fix the pipe uh, in the kitchen? And the plumber would say, no, that's also too difficult for me. However, um, if you put goggles on your head and live in the metaverse, there I can fix all your problems. Would you pay that plumber? I would never pay that plumber uh, because the plumber is talking about a reality that we not we do not share. And so all the people that talk about this multiverse or extra dimensions, all kinds of uh, fantasies uh, that cannot be ruled out. So the key here is you want any idea in physics to pass a test, uh, the guillotine of an experiment that will chop the head off uh, wrong ideas. And without access to experiments that can rule an, out an idea, you can't make progress in your scientific knowledge. So these people are talking about fantasies about the multiverse where anything that can happen will happen an infinite number of times. And why do they get popular? Because their ideas cannot be ruled out. So if a big enough community advocates them, then they can do intellectual gymnastics forever without confronting a test. And they like that because they can show that they are smart, do mathematical manipulations and give each other honors and awards. But what they are talking about is not accessible to us in the reality that we share. And frankly, it doesn't advance our knowledge. It's just like, uh, you know, metaphysics. It's not real physics. And so my problem with them is they are not uh, pursuing the definition of their job title, which is to understand the reality that we all share. But then you find something even more uh, amazing. The, some of them attack me when I deal with real objects and uh, I'm trying to interpret those real objects, which look different than the rocks that we are familiar with, different than asteroids, different than uh, comets. That's and the I real, you're say, talking about the real objects, but at the same time, they will push back on you and say, you don't have the incontrovertible proof that those real objects came from some space vehicle, or they may have come from outside of our solar system. They may have come from interstellar space, but do we know, or does it take a leap of faith oh, to we, think they came from a vehicle that visited us? We, we don't know for sure, and that's why I'm working on it, trying to get that evidence. So I went to the Pacific Ocean. You know, I didn't sleep any straight, uh, any night uh, uh, straight. I, I, I slept a few hours at a time because there were these uh, runs uh, crisscrossing the region that we were searching for the materials from this object. So I'm working around the clock, uh, trying to bring forward the evidence. And it's a lot of work. And those people are sitting back on their chair and making negative comments and talking about the multiverse. I say, what is more productive here? Why don't you um, you know, show some solidarity for the scientific process and try to support it. Because without seeking the evidence, it will never fall into our lap. You know, people say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but they are not seeking the evidence, so therefore they will never find it. And if you So, excuse me, what the, do we need to do? We need to accelerate space exploration? How do we do that? Oh, very simply. Uh, first of all, uh, only over the past decade, 
uh, we discovered the first objects from outside the solar system. We just didn't have the instruments. So when Enrico Fermi asked, where is everybody? That was really a very, a very lazy proposition. He was not searching for anything, just sitting in Los Alamos at lunch and saying, where is everybody? Like a person at home saying, I'm single. I don't have any partner. Well, of course you don't ha have any partner around you unless you go out to dating sites or look through your windows or leave your home to your backyard. You need to do something. And so only over the past decade, we had telescopes that could detect objects from outside the solar system, survey telescopes. So we found those. And the first two, the meteor and Oumuamua, the object from 2017 that looked very peculiar, both of them did not look like the asteroids or comets that we are familiar with. Of course, we cannot draw any conclusive uh, result from this, but it raises the possibility that maybe we are confronting some space trash. You know, we sent out uh, probes to interstellar space, so other civilizations may have done so. And we should therefore examine carefully every interstellar object. So to do that, you know, there is the Galileo project that I'm heading at Harvard University, which is building observatories, looking at the sky 24-7 and collecting data. We received funding at a few million dollars. If we had 10 times more funding, we could accomplish the task of clarifying what these UAP, un unidentified anomalous phenomena that the government talks about, might be. We don't need to wait for the government to declassify information so we can learn more about it. We can actually, the sky is not classified, the oceans are not classified. I've got the a lot of questions that, for you, but I wanted to ask you quickly on this note, should we be looking yeah. more toward the sky or looking more in the ocean? There are depths of the ocean that we haven't even explored yet. Yes. So the ocean, okay, if there is an object that doesn't collide uh, with Earth, we have to look at the sky to see it. Uh, and uh, and uh, that is very expensive. If we want to land on such an object like Oumuamua or come close to it, uh, we are talking about a budget of billions of dollars. However, if we are searching for interstellar meteors, these are objects that collided with Earth and were moving faster than the escape speed from the solar system. So they came from outside the solar Just based on their speed, uh, we can tell that they came from outside the solar system. Looking for their relics, uh, mostly in the ocean, because the ocean is 70% of the surface of the Earth. So most of the time they will fall into the ocean. And the ocean is an excellent museum. So that costs a thousand times less to find those materials. The expedition was one and a half million dollars, not billion. So. I think we can make a lot of progress with a, a budget of at the level of millions to tens of millions. And, you know, as a, at the moment, I have a few millions that I got from donations. But if we had 10 times more, we can really make a, a lot of progress on the question of what are these UAP that the uh, government talks about and what are interstellar meteors, whether any of them is technological in origin. That's what's required. Not a lot of money. If you think about uh, the biggest science projects, like the Large Hadron Collider that smashes particles at a very high energy, that costs $10 billion. We were looking for supersymmetry, a new symmetry of matter, uh, of uh, uh, of uh, particles that was not found okay we found only the higgs boson for 10 billion dollars here i'm talking about a budget that is uh, a percent of that or less than a tenth of a percent of that uh and uh, just for the question that is so much of interest to the public i think it's worthwhile it should be the uh you know in the mainstream of 
of physics or science because we are dealing with real things that people talk about. And why should we engage in fantasies without supporting these real things? A uh, question from one of our teams. I, I brought this up earlier, and he wants to know what you think of Hawking's admonition that things won't work out for us well. If we encounter a more advanced species, what are the chances that they'd be friendly? Yeah, so I don't, first of all, they probably didn't have in, us in mind when they, if they arrive here. And uh, I think it's more of an opportunity for us to learn about them. It's just like an, a colony of ants on the pavement uh, encountering a biker. And the biker is using a completely different way of um, uh, moving than uh, the ants. The ants are barely moving when the biker passes by. And so the biker doesn't really pay attention, you see. Uh, now, we tend to think, oh, maybe they will monitor us. They will look over our shoulder. That was also an attribute that was assigned to God, okay? Looking over our shoulder. Just think that there are billions of planets uh, and like the Earth, near stars like the Sun, roughly at the same separation, within the Milky Way galaxy alone. You know, it's a lot of bureaucracy or administration that God needs to have in order to watch out for over the shoulder of every being on those planets over, you know, 13.8 billion years. My, my point is... Should be Albert, looking out for I, the ants too, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone cares about us. I don't think we are that significant. You know, the biggest mistake we make is believing that we are uh, important or unusual or unique. And that was the mistake that my daughters made when they were young. And we paid a lot of attention to them. They were at home and they thought that they are the smartest in the world. And then on the first day at the kindergarten, they had a psychological shock. And of course, they would have preferred to stay at home and maintain the illusion. But I think it serves them better to know that there is a smarter kid on the block. They can learn from it. So I completely disagree with uh, the doomsday scenario of Stephen Hawking or others who are afraid of engaging. One of your daughters wanted a bracelet from that uh, I Am One <laughs> expedition, right? You weren't able to uh, accommodate her. They were too tiny as far as I'm... <laughs> Let me get to another yeah, question here. Uh, so, and thanks for the question, uh, uh, one of our listeners who says, how can the general public who may not have a background in astrophysics engage with and contribute to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or our understanding of the cosmos? Oh, very simple. If you are young enough, and I guess there is never uh, too old of an age for that, you can uh, become a scientist, you know, help. For example, it doesn't mean that you need to get a PhD, for example, on the ship. Uh, we had uh, uh, 28 team members that uh, I assembled and they were, you know, just the best professionals. Each of them contributed selflessly to the success of the mission. If I take any of these people out of the team, we wouldn't get what we got. And uh, But you're all part of a Class D civilization, aren't you? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. That's to do what better. you said. We're a class D civilization. Well, that's averaging over all humans. Yes. And some there are some bad players, I should say. There, uh, you know, I would not mention names, but the, you can see those are the people that engage in conflicts. Okay. They just uh, are engaged always in zero sum games. And I'm advocating an infinite sum game that is the nature of science. But my point about the team on the on the ship is that many of them did not have a PhD, but yet they contributed to the science that was done. And so if you take part in a scientific project and contribute to it, you don't need to be a 
a fully educated scientist, you can just make a contribution that will enable the science. Uh, but more generally, you can support science uh, financially. Uh, for example, what we talked about before, if I were to get millions or tens of millions of dollars, we can do the science and, and let you know whenever uh, we find something interesting, uh, you will be part of, of the family. And uh, uh, other than that, if you are young enough, you can just pursue uh, a scientific career. Uh, and despite all the pushback that I'm getting, you know, I maintain my childhood curiosity. I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate that it's possible. And the reason I'm doing that is because I grew up in a very unusual uh, background. I, I was born on, on a farm. I collected eggs every afternoon. I used to read philosophy books. I was not interested in becoming a scientist, but circumstances forced me to become a, a scientist. And then I realized it's an arranged marriage that I actually enjoy. Because, I'm sorry, I have to ask you, what were the circumstances that forced oh, you to compel? Uh, so in Israel, where I was born, you have to serve in the military. And uh, at age 18, I was given the opportunity to be part of uh, the so-called Talpiot project that allows uh, newly recruited uh, uh, soldiers to uh, pursue a PhD, uh, well, to pursue a first degree in physics and mathematics and then work on projects that uh, contribute to the defense of the country. And uh, I was able to well, we parachuted, we drove tanks. I was very good in the, uh, because I was good in sports. You know, I, um, they even offered me to be in the Delta Force in Israel, based on the fact that, you know, I was good in sports. But I wanted an intellectual pursuit, and this was the closest to philosophy for me. And then I got a PhD at age 24, and during that time, I proposed a project that was supported by the. A strategic defense initiative of uh, President Reagan at the time. And, and that uh, uh, brought me to Washington, D.C. And in one of the visits, I uh, visited also uh, Princeton, New Jersey, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Einstein was a faculty member a few decades earlier. And uh, they ended up offering me a five-year fellowship, at which point I said, well, I cannot give up on that. Uh, lots of people want it. So I took it. I had to learn the vocabulary. The, the condition was that I will switch to astrophysics. And I agreed to do that, but I had to learn uh, the basics. I didn't know how the sun shines. And then I got to Harvard just because nobody wanted that position because tenure uh, had a very low probability. And uh, I was there and within three years got tenured at Harvard and then became the chair of the astronomy department for nine years. I realized that even though it's an arranged marriage, I'm married to my true love. I can enjoy that marriage because I can use the tools of science to pursue fundamental questions, philosophical you, questions. You have a background in cosmology too, don't you? Yeah, I started by asking questions about the first stars in the universe, uh, the first galaxies, which is the scientific version of the story of Genesis. And I wrote two textbooks on that uh, that were published more than a decade ago. And they were the foundation for the science done now by the Webb Telescope. And as you may remember, uh, there was actually a public event at the White House celebrating the deepest images of the universe that show the first stars, the first galaxies. That was a subject that only a few people worldwide were interested in when I pioneered it. Uh, and I'm used to working on my own, uh, coming up with ideas that are not necessarily popular at the time from that experience, from the early beginning. And so I'm not, I don't care how many likes I have. Do you care about the fact, though, that some uh, criticism involves 
you just mentioned Webb, that this search for extraterrestrial intelligence and all of the emphasis you've put on the evidence that comes from outside of the solar system and interstellar space takes us away from all of the exciting things that are being revealed from Webb? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, as I said, science is an infinite sum game. So uh, it can be as rich as, as we make it, uh, limiting the number of discoveries so that uh, we can spend enough attention to each of them uh, is not a good uh, approach. If you are flooded with uh, amazing results, uh, so be it. You know, I, I'm all for it. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that only makes uh, the endeavor more exciting. And I, I think... Um, you know, kids approach it correctly. And and that is, let's learn what we can uh, about everything. Uh, and my most frustrating experience as a kid was asking a difficult question and the adults in the room dismissing it uh, because they didn't know the answer. I thought that by becoming a scientist, I could find the answer myself based on evidence. What I see right now is deja vu. Uh, the, the people who pretend to be the adults in the room dismiss the question and pretend they know much more than they actually know. And uh, that's very disappointing to me. Uh, I, I'm sorry that you're feeling that disappointment, but I certainly empathize and understand it. And here's a question for you from Jeff in Chicago, who says, is it possible that our and other governments are currently doing what you propose since they have deep submarine vehicles already? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, not only in this context, but um, also for unidentified anomalous phenomena. So the US government, for example, uh, has a day job, which is national security. And as a result of that, they monitor the sky. They have a huge budget, much more than scientists can dream of. You know, in one year, they get what we get in a decade or, or, or two. Um, so um, given this budget, given the huge uh, uh, data that they collect, they might notice unusual things and they can easily use their assets to retrieve things that they will take me a lot of fundraising to accomplish. Uh, so um, it's quite possible that the US government has important information, materials or information, or that they would go to the meteor site and try to look around. Uh, however, since I don't know that they're doing it, I cannot rely on that. No, but why would they keep all that secret, Area 51 and all this sort of thing that people are suggesting has been uh, kept secret and hidden all these years? I mean, in fact, there would be some greedy people who would say, I'll sell this information if it's possible. We had a president who took classified documents down to Mar-a-Lago. Some of these documents are accessible. If there was all this secretive stuff going on, I think it would have appeared maybe in the National Enquirer. There would have been a payment yeah. for it. Well, that's quite possible. And I, 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 you know, I haven't seen any such uh, materials or evidence. So until I see it, I, you know, I wouldn't believe it. Uh, and um, you're right uh, that, um, you know, the government is not a, a scientific organization. And if something has nothing to do with national security, I think they should have uh, shared it with all scientists. So I really hope that they were not hiding it from us. I, I believe just like you, uh, in the incompetence of government. I do believe that bureaucracy makes government very incompetent. They may confront interesting things, but if it doesn't relate to their day job, they will just ignore it, okay, or push it aside. So it's possible that they have some anomalies, things that they notice which they can't explain. But as long as they make sure that it's not, uh, it, it was not produced by the Chinese or the Russians, 
they just put it aside. And, uh, you know, that I can imagine. And if they have put it aside and didn't look into it, I ask them, please share it with some scientists if it has anything to do with interstellar space. Because, you know, out there in interstellar space, nobody cares how we split the land on this rock that we were born on, the Earth. Nobody cares about national borders. It's not a matter of national security. It's information. It's knowledge about the universe at large that should be shared by all humans. Do you watch the History Channel? Because the no. History Channel does all of these rather detailed visions of what may have occurred through extraterrestrial landings and different kind of phenomena that can't be explained and so forth. I mean, it's not history anymore. It's more kind of science fiction and so forth. I just wondered if you had familiarity with it. No. One of our listeners wants to know if as a kid you watched and enjoyed stories on Star Trek. No, not at all. And I was never interested in aliens. Uh, the only reason I was brought to uh, to this subject is by the anomalies of uh, Oumuamua and the first interstellar meteor and realizing that this should be a subject in the mainstream of astronomy. And unfortunately, it's not. I don't like science fiction. Uh, I was at the Washington National Cathedral at an event with attended by Jeff Bezos and Avril Haynes and Bill Nelson. And uh, Jeff Bezos was speaking and saying, um, you know, that uh, he was inspired to establish uh, Blue Origins after watching Star Trek as a kid. And I whispered to Avril, who was sitting next to me, and I said, uh, I never liked Star Trek because it violates the laws of physics. Now, Avril has a, a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Chicago, so she understood what I mean. Uh, but she said, Avi, we have to work on you. <laughs> well... Sounds like you got yourself a good wife, uh, if that's the case. Here's another question from, uh, thanks to Bill for this, from State College, Pennsylvania. What are the chances that unexplained phenomena are actually humans from the future rather than visitors from outer space? That's sounding more like science fiction, but what your thoughts? Um, we don't know how to construct a time machine at the moment. And some physicists, uh, like Kip Thorne, for example, advocated that there should be a law of physics forbidding, uh, you know, time machines that because you could uh, uh, change the conditions that led to a certain journey. Um, for example, if you kill your ancestors, then uh, how can you visit them and kill them if you do not exist because they die? Uh, I mean, there are issues with that. We don't know of a way of doing that anyway. Uh, what can happen? Uh, within the laws of physics as we know them, is that we are not the first to inhabit the Earth or any other planet in the solar system. Uh, there were a pre there was a previous civilization, okay, and uh, they built some uh, technological devices that took them to space or allowed them to hover over the Earth when the Earth went through some catastrophe, let's say hundreds of millions of years ago, and. Uh, if that's the case, you, we might find, I mean, you can think of it as uh, an archaeological find. You find things that belong to a culture that uh, predated us on Earth. That's possible uh, because, you know, if it happened hundreds of millions of years ago, or a billion years ago, maybe on Mars, a few billion years ago, and they came here, you know, we would know it uh, since Mars lost its atmosphere, lost its uh, liquid ocean on the surface. 
and uh, was struck by asteroids since then. And I calculated that uh, over a period of a few billion years, uh, the impacts by rocks from the solar system would be equivalent to 20 atomic bombs exploding per square kilometer in terms of energy release. So just wow. imagine, yeah. imagine New York City being bombarded by 20 atomic bombs per square kilometer. Uh, not much will be left of the high rises. You might see a little bit of hints, but that's what happens over a few billion years. So, you know, you can imagine a scenario where there was some technological culture in the solar system, either on Earth or elsewhere, and we are seeing them still around. Uh, that's possible. Well, there's billions of years and there's billions of planets and billions of galaxies and billions of stars. Yeah. However, is it possible, though? Have you entertained the idea or are you absolutely adverse to the notion, as some might have it, that there may be nothing at all out there? Oh, yeah, that's quite possible. Uh, I, you know, I, I have, um, I doubt that, let's put it that way, because um First of all, we are not that intelligent. If you look at the news, right? Uh, we are engaged most of the time in destructive uh, actions. Uh, we have we are allocating two trillion dollars a year to military budgets, uh, and uh, those, you know, do not bring any good to humanity. They just destroy. And uh, if we were truly intelligent, we would realize, you know, that uh, space exploration is far more valuable. And with that budget, we can send a probe towards every star in the Milky Way galaxy, a CubeSat, within this century, billions of them. I did the calculation. And uh, so perhaps what's missing is instead of alpha males dominating politics, perhaps if women were dominating politics, we would, we would go that route. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we are wasting a lot of resources on destructive measures. And that's not a sign of intelligence. And my hope is that a wake-up call will arrive in the form of a package that lands near our doorstep. And uh, it will show that someone else <laughs> reached our doorstep before we reached theirs. And that uh, that could be inspiring. Maybe we should behave differently and uh, maybe we should work together. That's my hope. Is it possible that what you discovered in New Guinea could have been related to some nuclear activity, experiments with nuclear weapons in Marshall Islands? Yeah, so that's a, a very good question, but we checked uh, the elements and the isotopes uh, that would have resulted from such uh, nuclear explosions, and they would not uh, agree with what we have uh, in, in, in those uh, molten droplets that we analyzed. Uh, for example, we demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt that um, uh, isotopes of iron do not represent anything on Earth. So this object must have arrived from space. Now, you can argue whether it's from space coming from the solar system or interstellar space, but it's uh, there is no doubt that it couldn't have been made on Earth. Uh, we see that in terms of the isotope. We also see in terms of the abundance pattern that we see. And the abundance pattern was never seen before for those extra spherules that we found along the meteor path uh, that we analyzed. And we analyzed only 57 out of 700 that we have at our disposal. So in the coming months, we'll do much more exhaustive analysis and get more, more uh, firmer results. But uh, 
it's very exciting, I must say, to be a, a part of um, a very risky project. You know, we could have found nothing on the ocean floor that is uh, extra solar in composition. We could have uh, not gotten funded. For, there are lots of failure points in this uh, operation. And, and I feel extremely lucky uh, to have been part of it. This was my first experimental project. I'm a, I was trained as a theorist thinking about ideas. And here is the first time that I was engaged in an experimental project. And I benefited greatly from the team that uh, came along for the ride. You had about 26 uh, engineers and astronomers with you. Uh, it was a yeah, full, full about team. That, yeah, about uh, that much. And then uh, when we came back, uh, uh, Stein Jacobson, my colleague at Harvard, has a team of uh, postdocs and, and students that were engaged. And, and I had a summer intern who found most of the spheros. Uh, her name is uh, Sophie Bergstrom. And, and she wanted to just shadow me during the work uh, because she wants to become a science journalist. Uh, but then uh, at some point she said, I, I'm happy to help. And I arranged tweezers and uh, a, a microscope for her to look through. And she found 10 times more spirals than we found on the boat, on the ship. And here is an example of someone who didn't have a lot of training in science and made the huge contribution because now we have much better statistics in our spheral counts. Well, we have this whole movement of lay scientists, you know, people who can contribute just with whatever work they're doing. In fact, uh, there's a whole question about the general public without a background and how they can engage. And lay science at least opens up a lot of those possibilities. I also have a question about fighting disinformation with an open newsroom where communities can see news as it's created. Your approach to publishing expedition journal entry seems equivalent. Is science in existential danger? Yeah, I, I worry about the situation in academia because a lot of people, uh, you know, the whole tenure system was invented to allow uh, professionals to deviate from the beaten path so that we can explore a path that was not taken. Because sometimes if you explore that, you find low-hanging fruit because nobody took that path. That's pretty much what I'm doing by searching for packages in our backyard uh, from extraterrestrial technological civilizations. But this is a path that was not taken. The, the SETI community was looking for radio signals for 70 years or so, and they have. it's just like waiting at home for a phone call. It's a very different method. You need someone to be active when you are listening. And here... Was you know, Frank Drake standard... wrong then? Sorry? Frank Drake, who started that whole study through radio yeah. signals. Was he wrong? He was on the wrong path? Well, uh, I mean, he was a pioneer. He, uh, he was a pioneer, I, I yeah, really, that's why I asked. I really enjoyed, I mean, I had the dinner with him for four hours uh, when we announced the Breakthrough Listen project in London. Uh, and I really admire his uh, kindness and uh, his vision. But uh, yeah, I do think that the idea that you know, we just developed radio communication on Earth, and therefore we should seek for any radio signals that may uh, be leaking from another planet or sent in our direction. I think that's misguided because the whole Drake equation is limited by the duration, the period of time where when the transmission takes place. And that could be really short because we are uh, shying away from radio communication. Now we have cables and um, also, you know, the technology of communication in the future will be very different than what we used in the first century of science and technology that we had. So just believing 
that uh, we might find a signal at the same technological stage as we are. It's possible that most civilizations died by now, those that existed before us. They just perished because their star died, because of some catastrophe, because of self-inflicted wounds, the way we behave. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, we don't have much chance of catching them at the time that they are transmitting radio signals. Most of the time they're in the jungles. To see them in that phase, we need to uh, embark a spaceship, go to their planet and start searching through the branches. That's very tedious, a lot of work. If you want them, if you want to see their technologies, you have to rely on either them replicating what we are doing or the way I see it, a much better approach is to look for physical objects that they sent. Maybe they littered interstellar space with objects and you know we just don't know until we check it. Uh, that's a, that's something that was never searched for until the last decade. And I'm happy to, you know, push it forward. And I think it should be part of the mainstream. And of course, we should also figure out if the government, uh, you know, has a point that some of these unidentified objects were not made by humans. Well, Professor Avi Loeb is on a mission. He wants to make us an interstellar species. His newest book, in fact, is called Interstellar. And a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Onward and upward or wherever without bounds. <laughs> Thank and, you so much. Lashana uh, Tova. I said I would use my Hebrew. My thanks to all of you who joined us for this live Gray Matter with Michael Krasny episode and to all who will be hearing it in the future on Apple, Spotify, or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And we invite you to uh, flex your own Gray Matter by joining our growing community at graymatter.show. Thanks to the great Gray Matter team, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Mickey. And thanks to this week's special guest, Professor Avi Loeb. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.